Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. This is Melek Altai. I'm a musician and a neuroscientist. My research focuses on deciphering the pathomechanisms of neurodegenerative and neurodevelopmental disorders. Today, I will be your host, and we will be talking to Dr. Ludovic Slimak about his new book, The Naked Neanderthal, published by the Penguin Publishing Group. Ludovic Slimak is a paleoanthropologist at the University of Toulouse in France, and director of the Côte-Mantin Research Project. His work focuses on the last Neanderthal societies, and he is the author of several hundred scientific studies on these populations. In The Naked Neanderthal, Slimak argues that Neanderthals should be understood on their own terms. They had their own history, their own rituals, their own customs, and their own intelligence. A remarkable intelligence but one that may have been very different from ours, although it can still teach us much about ourselves. Ludovic, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. How are you? Uh, very well. Thanks so much for your invitation. I'm, I'm very glad to be talking to you today. So before we get to discuss your book, could you maybe um, tell our audience a little bit about your background and your training? Well, I have a, a PhD in uh, archaeology and philosophy, and uh, I, I'm working on the question of the of Neanderthal populations, which are not our ancestors, but a parallel kind of humans that disappeared something like 42,000 years ago. And this disappearance is a huge enigma, and I try to to, to work on that question since 30 years, excavating in caves, in rock shelters, in, in a lot of sites. And I, I have directed archaeological missions from the Horn of Africa till the Arctic Circle in Russia, spending also a lot of time in, in Russia and Mongolia, seven years in Turkey. And actually, I have several uh, missions in the Rhone Valley in Mediterranean France, where I try to define who were this population and what is Neanderthal, and, uh, which is not obvious at all. And so how did you um, get the, the, the uh, motivation to write The Naked Neanderthal? Why now? Well, after 30 years of... of I, I, I was like hunting Neanderthal, you know. I tried to... I followed a path. I tried to understand what, what it was for, for decades. And after all this time, I know, of, of course, I published a lot of scientific papers, several hundred papers on Neanderthal populations, their organizations, their territories, discoveries. And uh, uh, at the end, I realized that there were several ways to understand this humanity, these humans. And for me, none of them was really reflect what I could see from the archaeological materials, from the tools, flint tools I found in the cave, from the weapons I found from these populations. And I realized that 
the most important part of what was Neanderthal was undefined. So at the moment, I took a pen, and after 30 years, I tried to, to express, which is not easy, because I tried to express something that was not really expressed precisely, and and doing so, trying to define what is an over-humanity was also a, a work and... and uh, and uh, and the travel to try to understand what we what we are us as Homo sapiens, and that was something even for me pretty surprising because at the end I reached some very important conclusions about Neanderthals and about us, and I was not ready to reach this conclusion before. You know, there's a famous sentence we say, "I write to know." what I should not know if I don't write it. And that was really this path after 30 years uh, in quest of Neanderthal. But it, I, that, mean, that was a real quest. I mean, in caves. I, I spent a month and month every year in caves trying to, to find all the remains, all the bones, all the things from these populations. And at the moment, so, okay, now I have to, I have to try to understand what instinctively I do and put words about that. And doing so, I wrote this book, The Naked Neanderthal, and I realized that for me, Neanderthal was not at all what we what we think he was. And this has a lot of impact and incidences in the definition of of ourselves. But I don't want to spoil everything. <laughs> Well, indeed, this is a very um, great existential question. So for me to understand a little better or better the, the Neanderthal world, could you maybe explain um, the world of the Neanderthals, maybe the climate and uh, how they managed to adapt to this environment? Well, there's, there's not a Neanderthal world because this population spent something like 300,000 years in all of Asia. And so that means they were from Spain to Siberia and until maybe the Arctic Circle, and they spent their lives in environments that for some time were Arctic, very cold, and in other periods were very warm, far warmer than today. You know, 125,000 years ago, there were Neanderthals in Eurasia. And at this period, the climate was two degrees higher than today. I mean, for the temperature of the ocean, that means that in Eurasia, locally the temperature were higher of 10 to 15 degrees than today. So at, in this period, they mainly lived in huge forests, in huge continental, in huge uh, um, boreal and continental forest. And in other periods, there were the, the very image we have of, of prehistoric population in Ice Age, you know. So the so. There's there's no there's no planet of Neanderthals. There's a lot. This population had a lot of adaptations from the Mediterranean Sea to the Atlantic to the Arctic Sea and to Siberia, but they lived. They were interrogators, but as as were our our own ancestors in that time period. But in that time period, there were our ancestors sapiens were not in Europe. They were in the Near East. And let's say 100,000 years ago or 150,000 years ago, they were in Africa, maybe in some part of Asia, but they never reached Europe at the time when there were 
Neanderthal. And uh, the precise moment when these two populations met, so when our ancestors met with Neanderthals, that's the precise moment when we see the extinction of these Neanderthalian populations. But we don't know if there's a direct connection between the two events, and that's a, there's a there's all, all a lot of question about this extinction in that book and what that could say because that's the last great extinction of human population. So now there's only us, there's only Homo sapiens, and so the next extension is us, and that will come at a moment. I don't know how, maybe very far in time, maybe very close, but that will come for sure. And so the question of uh, trying to understand the extension of a humanity is is uh, is something very important for us to 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 see and to define how humans very creative with uh, uh, with knowledge that uh, what were very precise great hunters great craftsmen incredible adaptation to a lot of very diverse environments suddenly. That's the end, and they disappear everywhere in Eurasia, you mean from Siberia and maybe till the, the Pacific. We don't really know the limit of extinction of this population in space. So that what, that what is sure that was very large. But at the moment, and roughly at the same period, poof, they disappear. And they, they don't mix, I mean, they don't... They don't disappear because they are of a question of, of DNA mixing with us and they are just in us today. It's not something like that. So that's something very important we have to understand. And we have to understand it not only because that's the last great extinction of humanity, but because this is talking about us and what could happen to us. And I would say that all these books, all the, the naked Neanderthal, I could have called these books the naked sapiens, because what we, what I do, I, 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 in that quest to understand Neanderthals, I, I systematically come back to us because it's. I use Neanderthal, the very precise knowledge I have of this population. I use it like a, like a tool, like a mirror to understand what we are. There's a, there's a great, a great person that was a researcher, French researcher, he was a linguist from the 20th century. His name was Georges Dumézil. He was making comparative mythology and uh, and he used more than 20 languages. And he's, he's, he had this sentence, he said, but maybe one of the greater thinkers of the 20th century, and he said, to understand something well, you have to compare it with something else. But the problem with us, with sapiens, we have nothing to compare. We have great apes, but if we compare us with great apes, of course, we will say, what a creativity, look at our achievements. But, uh, you know, when we do that, we compare with, with other animals. We are animals like our great apes, but our common ancestor is very far in time. You know, it's maybe, we don't really know, but let's say between 7 and 15 million years ago, there must have some kind of of ancestors of both the great apes and us. And so actually the great apes, uh, the, the chimps, baboons, uh, the gorillas are very, they, they talk about us also. Of course, but they are they are pretty distant and pretty far. But when we are dealing with Neanderthals, we are not dealing with a ten million years old ancestor, common ancestor. We are dealing with half a million years, which is a lot. 
but which is far less than the the question of the great tape. So if we are able to define what were these Neanderthal population, and I think that in this book, and maybe for the first time, I put very original words on what what we can think and how we can define these humans. And doing so, I create what we needed, said it by when when George Dumézid said, we need something else to compare with, to understand something. And then I create this mirror and defining Neanderthal, I have this fantastic tool to try to define what we are. And in your opinion, do you think that the Neanderthal nature is fundamentally different from the Homo sapiens nature? If we follow a lot of of researchers and my colleagues, I mean, since the last, let's say, 20 to 30 years, there have been a kind of rehabilitation. You know, in the past, we were thinking there were kind of rude and, and wild and barbaric populations. And then since 30 years, 50 years, there are process of rehabilitation that actually a lot of researchers think and, and have their conclusion that Neanderthals are just what we are and that we have been racist when defining these populations. The problem is, I understand the, the, this, this need of rehabilitations because the past definition of Neanderthals was something which was a bit weird. But when you, you, you work directly on this craft, you directly dig these caves and you see what this population let and they let us millions of tools i mean I, we don't have just few tools to understand what happened fifty thousand years ago we have millions of flint tools we have millions of weapons and we have all these objects that were abandoned by this population and when you work on this on these objects at a certain moment i realized something that was not obvious but that was of incredible importance. I realized at a certain moment that each Neanderthal tool made of flint, those we find in the caves, each of them were very nice. So the the ability of the craftsman to produce this tool were impressive and the objects are, they have a lot of aesthetic. So that's a fact. But there were something else we were not able to define before, that is that each of these Neanderthal objects are unique in their morphologies, in their way to understand how are you making a knife. So today, if you make a knife, you have very few solutions and all knives on earth are more or less the same with variants which are very marginals. But if you take a knife on Neanderthals or a point to hunt a bison, for example, Every single of these tools, every single of these three points is absolutely unique. And when you try to understand what is this unicity and you begin to carve in that direction, you realize that the craftsmen produce their, their tools in a kind of discussion, in a kind of dialectic with the raw materials. So for example, they take a boulder of flint and in that flint they want to make a, a knife. But that flint is going to have a certain color, a certain natural morphology, 
And in function of, of that, of this very basic and natural traits of the material, is going to change his project and to adapt his project in a kind of dialectic, in a kind of discussion with the, with the natural environment. And then you will create something which is absolutely original, very nice, but which is absolutely unique. When you take craft now from Homo sapiens 50,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago, I saw a lot of them in, in the Horn of Africa, for example. These tools are super standardized. I mean, the craft of Homo sapiens, the, the paleolithic craft, the prehistoric productions, when they make points, when they make weapons, they have a kind of series of production with a very clear project. And when you measure them, sometimes there's only one millimeter difference between two tools. They are all the same. And at the moment, I realized that this was something absolutely major. We had here a definition of sapiens, which in his relation with his production, is there's the notion of standardization, of series, of mass production, even in the far Paleolithic. But when we you deal with Neanderthal, the relation with the environment is completely different, and I'm going to change all my project to adapt myself in function of the very natural morphology of what I'm going to exploit. So this is so deep and so important you know, the, the way the way Homo sapiens were producing their tools 50,000 years ago, in the way to understand the world, it's exactly our own way to understand the world. You know, actually, when we do a tool, when we do a car, when we do whatever, any craft production, we have a certain plan and we are going to follow certain path and certain 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 moment of the production to produce a very, very systematic and standardized element. And so there's something universal in that and something very important that we did not realize before, that notion of standardization. And of course, I think that the object of Homo sapiens, Paleolithic object, are not nicer than the object of Neanderthals. I told you that the, the craft of Neanderthals are impressive, you know, both technically and in terms of aesthetic and uh, and beauty. Are, it's something very, very nice. And sometimes, sometimes you can take an object and have a, a, a very important emotion when you realize what the craftsman done, uh, done for, to produce this object. But at a certain moment, this distinction with every production of Neanderthal is something unique and every production of Homo sapiens is something standardized, then this is directly talking not of the Paleolithic societies, but directly talking about us. And when I tell you all these tools are the same and all these tools are unique, I'm not talking about craft. I'm talking about your way to understand the world and your relation your, your own way to be human on Earth. And these two populations, us and our ancestors, and in, on the other way, Neanderthals, appear when you, and this I realized it in the naked Neanderthals, there were no studies that, that put these words of definition of both Neanderthal and Homo sapiens. And when I realized that, of course, then you have an incredible key to understand what they were and what we are. And also, I would say that there's this question of the extinction of the population for Neanderthal. If you accept that we have an incredible standardization, it's not 
the sapiens tools and weapons are not smarter, but this standardization give our ancestors and give actually our population an incredible efficiency. Of course, when every do everybody do the same thing all together, you are not smarter, but you are much more efficient. And I think that this is, that these degrees of efficiency that were very distinct between our ancestors and Neanderthals, with Neanderthals that were much more local population living in their little valleys and trying to reproduce the ancient way with a lot of creativity and with a lot of, of, of you know, um, there's something like I told you a little bit before, if we compare what we do with the great tapes, we said, wow, we are Homo sapiens is so, so creative. But now if you compare, uh, you understand what I told you and you compare Neanderthal and Homo sapiens, you see for sapiens an hyper-efficiency, they are highly efficient populations, yes. And on the other way, you have in the other side, you have highly creative populations. So the, if we are thinking, if we are saying, well, if, is the definition of human the creativity and the liberty of mind? If the definition of human is the creativity and the liberty of mind, then maybe that humans disappeared 42,000 years ago with the last Neanderthals, and it remains only a very specific version of what is to be human on Earth, which is our own version. And this own version is the version of the uniformity and the standardization. And that's why I think this book, The Naked Neanderthal, is something very important. It's not, well, okay, if you love archaeology, paleolithic, prehistoric society, you will take a lot of fun because uh, it's talking about all that with great definition and uh, and it's uh, and it's also a travel book so it's very easy to read i think and you 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 can read it if you are a thinker a philosopher a sociologist or just the random person that just want to know more about the past this book is made for everybody but this book open windows and gates and doors that were absolutely unexpected and that, that are talking about us. When I said, okay, now we have a definition of homo sapiens, which is not the creativity, but which is the standardization and the normalization, the uniformization. So uniformization, uniformization, you know, it's a, the uniform is the clothes you put to the army as everybody must be the same altogether. And why we put uniforms to the militaries? We put uniforms because if everybody do the same thing altogether, you will be more efficient than your enemies and you will win the war. And that's why we, we do armies, you know. And so in that way, I would say that when we are looking certain section of our own society, of, of our own organization, let's say, maybe school, maybe army, maybe, let's say, synchronized dance, you know? You would say the hyper homo sapiens, you know, when you put 50,000 person in a place and everybody dance at the millimeters in the same way, that's very nice, that's very impressive. But that's terrifying. 
that something with degree of uniformization show also our ability to manipulate each individual is something unique, but we are super efficient altogether. And when we we think the way to build an army or a school, we are trying to, you know, that's that's Pink Floyd, another brick in the wall. And that's way to that's way to be on Earth. It's something hyper homo sapiens and putting words in we have to be careful in our own way to be on earth, in our own way to be humans, there's a high efficiency, and this high efficiency is also something dangerous. What our relation to army and to the otherness and to what is a war is something highly dangerous. So we have we have behaviors, us as animals, you know, uh, humans are animals and we are super territorial and super aggressive. And if you put another degree, another layer on that, which is we have this hyper-efficiency of the standardization, you know, the this efficiency is the efficiency of the end. It's not the, it's not something that makes us, that we would like to define. We, I think when I define human like an ant, it's not something very nice and not something you expected and not something you would like to hear about ourselves. But it's something very clear and something very important. And I think we should be aware. And that's, that's the topic of my book. The conclusion of my book is we have to understand what we are on earth because there's something in us and we know it by looking over humanities. There's something in us which is impressive, hyper efficient, but also very dangerous. And actually, there's certainly a relation between the fact that there's only, only Homo sapiens and every any other kind of humanity just disappeared. And the fact that we, our own way to understand the world is super efficient. But this efficiency, uh, at, for results, the, the, the disappearance of any other human populations. And actually, this efficiency is destroying all the biodiversity on Earth. We are so efficient. We are too much efficient. And we destroy everything. And we destroy all the biodiversity. And so after maybe I've been destroy all the human diversity. We are destroying all the biodiversity. Not because we are bad, but because of what we are and because we were maybe not able to put words to understand what we are. And what we are is something really great, but also really dangerous. And now we are destroying our all our environments because of our super efficiency. And then what will remain, it's sapiens facing sapiens. And it's likely that if we continue in that direction, in that path, we will destroy ourselves. Our own efficiency at the end will destroy what we are. And so that book, The Naked Neanderthal, is about the past, is about Neanderthal, but it's also about us and it's also SOS for our future. Indeed, this is an amazing perspective that really makes me think um, more about uh, Homo sapiens nature as much as the Neanderthal nature. Um, so how do you explain the extinction of the Neanderthals? It's very likely that, well, we, we don't know much about the very last Neanderthal populations. Um, 
in the past, a lot of my colleagues were thinking that in the last moment, in the last centuries, uh, Neanderthals invented a very modern way of life, like Homo sapiens, much more modern than the traditional Neanderthal craft, and then he vanished. The problem is, well, I worked a lot, that's the main topic of my research, so I tried to put very simple words. It's very likely that this modern way to be human by Neanderthals was not the fact of Neanderthals, but the fact of, of sapiens populations. And it's very likely that the last Neanderthals died as they were from all time. I mean, this, this kind of the organization of his population was the same at the moment of the extinction 42,000 years ago than 300,000 years ago. So that's the first first fact, and that changed a bit the way to understand it. The second fact is it's very likely that we, we are facing very little populations, very isolated. We know now by DNA, we realize that these populations were very isolated. There were several populations. And for example, I'm working in the Rhone Valley, so it's, this is in Mediterranean France. And there, when I was working in my during my to make my PhD more than 20 years ago, 25 years ago. I was working on Flint and I was comparing the Flint from the Rhone Valley with Flint from the, from, uh, the western part of France in the Atlantic coast. Uh, not far, few hundred kilometers from there. And uh, I realized that what I saw in Mediterranean France was very, very, very original. And so I gave name and said, well, the, the last Neanderthals in that region are very distinct. And we were able now, so few few years ago, I found a body, a Neanderthal body. Actually, it's, it's still unpublished, but we find this body in a cave in Mediterranean France that was the first Neanderthal body found in France since 1979. So that it's a huge discovery, but more than 40 years, but we did not find such thing. And we were able, that at the very top of our cave, so that we know that's, that's, that's the very last Neanderthal. We were able to extract DNA. So we know that this Neanderthal was a male, he has a Y chromosome, it's an adult, but we were also able to define that this Neanderthal and all his all his brothers, all his populations were very distinct from every other Neanderthals in Europe. Every late Neanderthals were completely different than the body with the body that we find in, in my cave. And working on that, we realized that these two populations, so we have this population in Mediterranean France and we have the classic late Neanderthals elsewhere, let's say in, in Western France, a few hundred kilometers between them, maybe some, for some places from maybe a hundred kilometers between the two populations. But these two populations, they spent 50,000 years, we know it by DNA, 50,000 years without changing a single gene. That means that these populations are absolutely isolated. They are in, the, in their little valley and they did not move for tens of thousands of years. And they didn't try to exchange 
genes with overpopulation to make alliances to to exchange ideas and and genes and so they just stayed there and of course when you are super isolated super creative just living in your little valley in little groups when homo sapiens arrived in europe homo sapiens in that time period 50,000 years ago 40,000 years ago developed connections at the scale of the Mediterranean Sea. If you take the craft, for example, in Mediterranean France, the way to make weapons in Mediterranean France by Homo sapiens 54,000 years ago, and the way to make weapons in Lebanon, in Lebanon, so in the in the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea, 3,000 kilometers straight line in between the two sites, in between Grotte-Mandrin and, uh, and the Xarakil site, for example, at one millimeters, the tools are the same. That means that the connection are straight. So we have there, Homo sapiens, we have social connection of several thousand kilometers. So the, we have social norms. We have we have social networks. And these networks are super efficient. And so you have this population of Homo sapiens, hyper-standardized, hyper-modern, with incredible networks with all that reach all Western Eurasia, and they reach little population, super isolated during 50,000 years, who never change their way of life, and that just that, that are hyper creative, but they just live there in that valley and they don't move. So the encounter, whatever, the relation could have been very good, and maybe they tried to exchange in, but maybe that didn't really work very well between the two populations because they were too distinct. And so at the moment, there were just a super efficient. I don't say Homo sapiens is a bad guy who killed all the Neanderthals. I never said that. I think it's very likely that the relations were pretty good between the two populations, but one pop their way to understand the world. What I told you about the creativity, the uniqueness, and the standardization were so different that you know, the expansion of sapiens on new territories was like a wave and everything was, uh, you know, like thin in the territory. Even if the two population had very few contacts, I think that's just the, the social structures of the little local Neanderthal society just collapsed on themselves. Like we saw for a lot of populations of Native Americans where, where the Europeans arriving with completely different organizations, with completely different networks, with completely different technology. There are series of collapse, of local collapse of, of Native American population and societies, which was a terrible in some places when when the Europeans arrive in some territories the the local population already completely collapsed before before the European arrived because for, by the simple fact that there was the presence of a completely different population with a completely different organization and with the local population it worked like a domino you have a, a destabilization of the first population and at its borders with overpopulation they fall tak 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 and all the population collapse in between them and at the at the end uh, it remained only there only one population but there so when I do this comparison Native American Europeans there's a limit because when you compare Native Americans the colonization of the Americas you only compare 
two Homo sapiens populations with two distinct history and two distinct traditions. But when you are dealing with sapiens and Neanderthals, the colonization of Europe and not the colonization of the Americas, you are dealing with two different ways to be on the planet. And so in between all these factors, uh, sociological, genetical, territorial, the question of network, the question of, of of the way to be human on Earth, you have all the key to understand how and why the Neanderthal population have been vanished on Earth. Fascinating. Uh, this has been an amazing discussion. Um, so before we end, end the uh, discussion of today, uh, what are you currently working on or what's your next project? Is there another book coming up? Actually, uh, The Naked Neanderthal is the first book of a trilogy. And so ah. the second book just appeared in May in France, and so the name is The Last Neanderthal. And the third book, I'm right now uh, working on it, and I will end it before next summer, I hope. <laughs> and of Amazing. course... You know, it's a, it's a trilogy, and so uh, the first was redefining, completely redefining what is Neanderthal and what we are. Understanding, so the subtitle of the first book is uh, A New Understanding of the Human Creature. The second book, The Last Neanderthal, the subtitle is uh, uh, Understanding How Humans Die. And so the third book is directly talking about sapiens. And I think all together, the three books make a trilogy, and this trilogy could be called The Mirror of Sapiens. Fantastic. Okay, then we should have another uh, podcast in the <laughs> next couple of months. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. That was a, a, a great pleasure to try with my absolutely French English to express uh, this concept. But uh, well, the book has been very well translated. Don't be afraid. It's a, <laughs> a pure poetic way to express and much more uh, English, traditional English <laughs> on my own English. <laughs> <laughs> it was perfect. Thank you. Merci beaucoup. Au revoir.